to you on, uh, on Easter Sunday. I ask you to take your, uh, your Bibles, whether it be on your telephone, on your tablet, or if some of you still have the written book, uh, turn to Mark chapter 15. And this morning we're going to read, we're going to just step back a couple of days, and we're going to read from uh, verse 39 through to the end of chapter 15, and then we're going to read chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. As I was preparing my, uh, my message for you this morning, I went back in my memory uh, to when, and in fact, I'll talk about this a little bit more in a minute, but I, I thought about when I was doing my graduate studies in early Christian literature. And uh, one of my professors uh, was actually, um, he, was, he was quite a scholar on the Gospel of Mark. I, I, didn't, I didn't study Mark with him, I was studying other stuff. But uh, as I was reflecting back on his work, and in fact, I still have a copy of his doctoral thesis in my library downstairs, but I, I had a front row seat this was at the end of the 1970s, over a very robust debate that was going on about the Gospel of Mark, particularly the beginning and particularly the end. And, and I'm going to talk about that this morning. But for those of you that are taking notes, um, if you want to know where I'm heading this morning, this is all about an empty tomb, scared women, a young man, and Peter. And the question I want to ask this morning is, what does it all mean according to Mark? So let's read the passage together. The scene at Golgotha ends this way in Mark chapter 15 and verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the son of God. Some women, same event, were watching from a distance and among them were, now catch, watch their names, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many, of, many other women who had come up with them to Jerusalem were also there. Verse 42. It was the preparation day, that is the day before Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead and summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, placed it in a tomb, cut out of the rock. Then he rolled the stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, two of the three women, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Chapter 16. Now back to the three women. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might go and anoint Jesus' body. Very early the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. And now we see how ill-prepared they were because it says, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? 
But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. And we all probably ought to write in our texts, and so would we have been. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He was risen, and he is not there. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell the disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Trembling, remember they were alarmed. Now they're trembling and bewildered. The women went out and fled from the tomb and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. In my library, um, as I was doing this reminiscing on this front row seat that I had back in the late 1970s as to what was going on both at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, as well as this end, um, I thought about two books that I have in my library. Now, now, this illustration would work a whole lot better if I was there at Rosemount Bible Chapel, but I'll try and make it work. Um, one of these books is the wonderful classic, Knowing God, by James Packer. Um, I actually have a 1975 edition of that book. Now, you will notice that this book is incredibly tattered at the beginning, and it's virtually unreadable when you get to the end. Uh, yes, you've guessed right. Uh, I've read this book faithfully once a year, since 1975. Now, another book I pulled out of my library, um, this one I have read so many times, it doesn't even have a cover on it anymore. Uh, it's The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. I, I show you those two books, not to make a comment about the Gospel of Mark, but just to underscore that used texts end up getting a little tattered. And the front row seat that I had back in the late 1970s on the Gospel of Mark was, was it possible that because Mark was the oral oldest of the Gospels, that the front end and the back end got overly used? Now, I'm not going to comment on that. The text is an authoritative text. But to say the least, there's damage to the text. There's some strange things in the text we're going to look at today. But it's a text that makes us think. And I think that's actually the purpose for which Mark wrote the gospel. I remember several years ago, there was a marvelous exposition at the Musée downtown Point de la Calière, where they had fragments and documents of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I remember going and studying some of those fragments. And I took my students that I was teaching that year. And I thought, trying to figure out how tattered old documents fit together is really an art form. And that's what that front row street seat in the 1970s taught me. Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to start off with four very short preliminary reflections. We're going to do this one quickly. Then I want to put Mark chapter 16 that we just read. I want to put it in the context of the whole book. And then I want to finish by looking at the empty tomb, scared women, the younger man, and Peter. Question before us this morning, what does it all mean? 
Now, let's start off with the four reflections. Uh, you'll remember, if you go back to the beginning of our series in, in Mark, that Mark has the shortest intro of all of the Gospels. It has one verse. Imagine, Matthew gives two chapters, Luke gives three chapters, and John has that magisterial prologue. And Mark gets to the point with one verse. And there's even part of that verse that people like to debate. But when we come to the conclusion, and here's where things get really strange, because as you will see, and maybe it's in your Bible like it's in my Bible, there's actually a shorter end, which is the second part of verse 8 in chapter 16. And then there's a longer end that goes from verses 9 to 20, and you've probably got fine print in your edition, like I've got fine print in mine, trying to figure out where do all these endings fit in? Now, we're not going to get into that today, but if you want to talk about it, feel free to give me a call this week. It, it just, the text that we know is, was there right from the very start is what I read to you this morning. And that's what we're going to concentrate on. But here's why that end is really strange. Because if you translate literally from Greek into English, the end of verse 8, it actually says, for they were afraid in effect. Now, all of us learned, never finish a sentence with a conjunction. And that's really how the text ends, for they were afraid in effect. And as I like to say, that's no way to end a sentence. And it's even stranger way to end a book. But what's really strange about this text is that this is the most unique of all the texts that talk about the resurrection of Jesus. Now, like the other texts, it's always told from the point of view of the women. And yes, the women were alarmed. They were bewildered. They were trembling. But at least they were doing what Jesus had commanded them to do while the men were fleeing. You see, there's lots of good reasons not to deal with Mark's gospel when you're going to talk about Easter. But you've got to deal with the text. And this takes me back to my own journey. Because as a, as a young university student in the early 1970s, I was really wrestling what it would mean to be a Christian. And although, as many of you know, I grew up in a very orthodox Christian home, by the time I got to the end of high school and by the time I got to university, I was ready to throw everything up. And I met a group of students that began to walk with me and they began to try to help me to make sense of everything that went on on that Easter Sunday. And they took me through every possible theory about what had happened. They took me through every question I had about the New Testament documents. I meant I went back to a museum back in those days to look at old fragments to try and make sense. Who is this guy, Jesus? But I was forced to deal with the text. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Now, with that said, um, what does it all mean? That's our question this morning. And I will contend that these eight verses at the end of chapter 16 actually help us to understand everything Mark is trying to do in this gospel. Because you'll remember in this gospel, the first eight chapters, there's everybody trying to figure out 
who Jesus is. And the only ones who confess that Jesus is Lord are the demons. It's the spirit world. You have to wait till Peter's confirmation or affirmation in chapter 8 and 13 to get one of the disciples to kind of figure it out, at least verbally. The other thing that's really interesting in, in Mark is that on five occasions, starting with the intro in chapter one and verse one, Jesus is affirmed as being the sent one, the Messiah, the Christus. And actually the last person to say it is this centurion. So Mark is trying to get us to understand who is this sent one? Who is this Messiah in the Hebrew tradition? Who is this Christus in the Greek and Roman tradition? But Mark also does something really interesting. He invites his reader to pay really a close attention to what he's saying. And on five times in his book, he draws the reader in and makes the reader think. And it all comes to a culmination in chapter 13, where Mark is talking about the eminent expectation of his readers. And he actually stops and he puts into the text, let the reader understand. So the whole purpose of the book is to get the reader to understand who is this sent one? Who is this Messiah? Who is this Christ, the King? You see, because Mark's gospel is all about this eminent expectation, this great hope, this great secret that needs to be unveiled, that needs to be pondered and penetrated, that in the here and now, God has something to say through this sent one. And evil and death are not the last word. And Mark wants the reader to think about this. And it all comes to a culmination in these last eight verses of chapter 16. So in light of that, this little paragraph in the bigger concept of the book, what do we learn? We learn something from an empty tomb. We learn something from scared women. We learn something from a younger man. And we learn something about Peter. Let's de deal with each of them. Okay, these first eight verses, there are no appearances. In other words, this resurrection story is different than all the other ones that have a very specific form to them. Mark doesn't give us that form. But just because something is absent from the storyline or in the text doesn't mean that it didn't happen. You see, with the empty tomb, Mark is answering the question, what does it all mean? Because he's forcing us to deal with the fact that the tomb doesn't have a cadaver. The tomb is empty. Now, you see, an empty tomb doesn't explain, uh, the, the resurrection doesn't explain the empty tomb, but rather the empty tomb explains the resurrection. Go back to my story. I was confronted with an empty tomb when I was a university student. And my friends were nice enough to me to not force me to just merely accept their interpretation of a historical resurrection of a dead body. But they said, okay, Smith, you wanna be consequential to your rationality, however fallen it might be, 
Here's all the different possibilities. And I went on a year long hunt to look at all of the different explanations for the empty tomb. I mean, one of them is in Matthew's gospel. The disciples came along, they rolled over the stone on their own, they took, they stole the body. And so therefore, the Roman authorities paid off the soldiers uh, so they'd stay silent. But there's lots of other theories that have happened down through history. Um, the fact of the matter is, I needed to get an answer for myself. The man that helped me the most, I've lost my tattered edition, what's the book, Who Moved the Stone? Frank Morrison is one of those authors that changed my mind. And he changed my mind in the funniest of ways. You see, he set out to disprove the resurrection. In fact, chapter one of this book is what he was trying to do. And he got to the point where he had to change the purpose of his book because his conclusion was, it takes more faith to believe all of the other explanations other than the one that the tomb is empty because Jesus rose from the dead. And I'll never forget the day that I got down on my knees in my university residence and I said, I am going to follow you because you rose from the dead. And I can only thank people like Frank Morrison for convincing me. So the text says, what does it all mean? The empty tomb is explained by the risen Christ. But, but then we come to the scared women. Now, as I said, these women were alarmed. The text says they were bewildered. It says they're trembling. We see that all the way from verse 40 to 47 to 16.1 to 16.8. Their purpose in going to the tomb was, was quite clandestine, if you will. Remember, Jesus had been crucified because he was perceived by Rome, by the Jewish authorities as being a criminal. So they, they didn't really have a good plan. That's why in verse three, it becomes very obvious their, their plan to go and anoint the body was not very well thought out because on the way there, they think, oh, wait a minute, how are we going to move that stone? But Mark has already told us that the body had been wrapped according to Roman custom. Um, but when they get to the stone being moved away and the tomb being empty, uh, they can't anoint the body because the body's not there. And they learned something they didn't expect to learn. But you see, they're serving God's purposes for you and me so that we get an explanation for what happened. And when you get to chapter verse 8 and that funny conclusion, we've got nothing less than an epiphany, a manifestation. All of a sudden, their alarm, their trembling, their bewilderment. All of a sudden, it looks like we've got an answer. And that answer is then in the young man. Okay, the empty tomb, scared women. But now we come to this young man in verses five to seven. Now notice, Mark does not call him an angel. The other gospel writers refer to this young man or two of them in one of the other texts as an angel. But Mark just says he's a young man. But you see, he unveils the secret. He's the one who makes everything sensible. And he only affirms what Jesus had predicted in chapter 9, that Jesus had to suffer in chapter 13, that Jesus will come again in his glory in chapter 13. Why, he even reminds them, remember, Jesus told you to go to Galilee. Why are you here in Jerusalem? Now, what's really funny 
is that when you read this text, you need to remember the first readers, when they read this story, they knew how the story ended. And so the story, again, let the reader understand. So we're drawn back into the story so that it'll make sense to us. But remember how unsensical this story must have been, not just to those first readers, but to those women and to the disciples. You see, the, the idea of resurrection was a totally, as you and I understand it, was a totally foreign idea to Jews. Why they thought resurrection, that's what's going to happen to all of us because we're the elect people of God. And when we go to the afterlife, we will be resurrected. The idea that someone would die, be buried, rise again, take on his body, be embodied back in his body. I mean, talk about Greek. That was Chinese. And this wouldn't have made sense to the Greeks either. Because when Greek used the idea of resurrection, they were talking about somebody waking up, about somebody standing up. Why, it's as if this morning when your alarm clock went off, if you were talking in Greek, you would have said, I am resurrected. And again, to the Greek mind, that somebody would die, be buried, wrapped up, anointed, a stone put in front of their tomb, and get up out of that and assume life in a human body. I mean, that was Aramaic to these people. But you see, the young man makes sense of it because he puts everything in the context of what Jesus had been teaching for three years. So there's an empty tomb. There's scared women. There's a young man who interprets it all. But you've got to love what that young man said in chapter 16 and verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why that young man says Peter in the Gospel of Mark. And we don't see the same thing in the resurrection stories in Matthew, in Luke, in John. You see, Peter was the one who confessed Jesus as the sent one in chapter 8. It was Peter who made a fool of himself on the Mount of Transfiguration when he wanted Jesus to build tabernacles to commemorate the event. It's Peter who really screwed up in chapter 14 with the threefold renunciation of even knowing Jesus. And so the young man wanted Peter to know the tomb is empty. These scared women have got a story. And the young man is going to put it all together for you, Peter. And so imagine 50 days later, Peter can stand before a crowd in the same city and he can explain how it all makes sense. Now, Peter's probably mentioned as well because Peter was probably Mark's informant when he wrote this gospel. And so it was important for Mark, for Peter to know what had happened. So what does it all mean? It's an empty tomb. 
So the question is, where's the body? Uh, there's the scared women who, in a miraculous way, in the other gospel stories about the resurrection, find real peace. They are the primary informants. Uh, there's this young man, man, a witness to the greatest event in human history. And then there's Peter, who then opens up for the gospel to move from Jerusalem to Samaria, to the Romans. And he becomes a pillar of the church. So what does it all mean for you and me in conclusion? Well, this young man's message takes us back into the whole book of Peter. And it thrusts us back into understanding the story. A story where there's suffering. A story where there's failure. Peter's failure. But it's a story that invites us all to think about what does it mean to be a follower of the one who died, was buried, rose again, and assumed a life here before ascending, and so that today the ultimate sent one is seated at the right hand of God, the most majestic thing that the New Testament can say about the resurrected Christ. And it's almost as if Mark wants to say at the end of the gospel, let the reader understand. But my friends, this is not just about understanding. This is about understanding and acting. And so may the resurrection story prompt us to action. So some of you know that uh, um, as a result of this crazy pandemic um, that we're in, that Sandy and I have gone out of our way to uh, reconnect with all of our neighbors. Um, the despair in my neighborhood is like the despair in your neighborhood. Um, but Sandy and I have gone out of our way to reconnect with our neighbors. And so every six to eight weeks, we come up with a card, we come up with a little gift, we go door to door because we're trying to squeeze some meaning into their lives. So this past week, we bought 12 little plants. We wrote the story of Easter. Um, we invited them all to come and attend an Easter service online. And we're trying to bring some meaning into their lives. I had three wonderful conversations this week with, my, with three of my Muslim neighbors. Why, on Good Friday, one of them, Ahmed, who lives two doors from me, he said, well, you're Jesus. He's a really, really, really great person. The Quran talks about him. And his mother is maybe the most glorious mother that ever lived. I, I, can't, I can't believe that he's the son of God. Classic Islamic interpretation of Jesus. But he said, I really like Jesus. I said, Ahmed, let's talk about the fact that he's alive. And he said, yeah, we'll do that. So my friends, it's not just about understanding. It's acting. And it's about bringing the good news of the risen Jesus during the pandemic to our neighbors. Let's pray together.
This morning we address you as the risen Lord. That you are risen indeed. And thank you that we can now look to the next series of days as we wait in great anticipation to Pentecost and a celebration of you pouring out your spirit on all of your followers. But today we stop and just, we adore you. Lord, help us to understand what all this means, but help us to understand so that we act on it because we want to be followers of you. We want to do what you want and bring great honor to you. I pray for my sisters and brothers present on my screen this morning. Animate them afresh by your spirit to follow you as the risen Lord who is seated at the right hand of the creator right now. We pray this in your name. Amen.